The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Revival. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 64, 1-4, and Matthew 28, 16-20. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. From the book of Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here at Sacred City. I got a couple things I want to say before I jump into this sermon this morning. Um, One was... Yesterday and Friday night and Saturday morning, we uh, put on the Relational Soul Conference, brought in uh, the authors of the book, The Relational Soul, Richard Plass and Jim Cofield. Uh, we had over 120 of our folks at this conference. Um, I, from what I've heard, and I was there, uh, I think this was the best thing that we've ever put on at Sacred City, and it was, it was lights out, so it was I'm just, I just... I've just heard great things, and we're really encouraged. And I wanted to thank uh, Ben, who was just up here, uh, for putting together everything and organizing everything. Uh, I think, I mean, 180 took care of the food. The food was unbelievable. Like, ribs, really? (laughs) Like, not just sandwiches at some conference, you know? Ribs. It was awesome. And so I know there's a lot of processing going on, and we've got a lot of things, but I just want to thank everyone, Mackenzie for setting up, and, and Moline for being over there, and you guys, for people stayed after and clean. It took a lot of, you guys didn't know this, but it was over a year ago that we booked Jim, Rich and Jim. That's how high of, in demand that they are, and that's how, how their schedule is full that far out in advance. And so we, it's a, we've been literally planning that for over a year, and I was pleasantly surprised. I was blown away. I thought it was, I thought it was great. And so I was really encouraged by it. So thank Ben. Thank the people that helped out. Thank all you guys. Wow. What is this? And that's a great segue into my next thing I wanted to talk about. That we are embodied people. Okay? We're embodied souls. We have a soul, our heart, our mind, but we have bodies. And God gave us our bodies to engage with him in worship. So when we worship, we don't just worship like this. Right? I'm getting it in right now. You don't even know it, but in my mind, I'm worshiping. We were given bodies to, live, to worship him. And so the Psalms, which is our worship book, say, sing out with a loud voice. Tell us to shout for praise. Tell us to lift our hands. Tell us to dance for joy sometimes right? And many times we are the frozen chosen, okay? I was going to say it. I get why we feel that way this week. We've lost an hour of sleep. But last week, 
Is anybody here last week? I've heard so many times from people from last week, they're like, whoa, what was up with last, ser- last week's service? Well, and I've had a lot of interpretations. There was a lot more people here. We had our, our family from 180 here. Uh, 180, they're, they're very diverse. They come from a di- different ethnic background, socioeconomic backgrounds. They come in, and this is what one person, one elder said to me. You know what? It's so fun to worship with people who have something to be thankful for. Now that, ooh, that was a stinging rebuke. That was a stinging rebuke because many of the folks at 180 are aware of what God has done in rescuing them from a life of addiction and a life of whatever. And so because they're very aware of it, listen, when you're up here in your head, they're looking at you like, they don't believe it. They're looking, I mean, that's, they're looking at you like, they're not happy about what Jesus has done. They're not aware of it. And in there, they might not be looking at you like that, but that's how they're expressive, right? They're feeling it and they're expressive. And I want us, that, I'm just gonna tell you, that's where we're headed. Okay? That, that's where we're headed. It's not okay. It's not okay um, to uh, let everybody else be excited about Jesus, okay? It's not okay. We want you to be growing in it. We want you becoming more aware of it. We want you to be coming, you know, realizing your body that God gave you that hand. And I know somehow you might be, right? I know there's all kinds of things in your mind that you're drawing attention to yourself. You're not. Nobody cares about you. They, they don't. They're not looking at you. They, they don't care. They're worshiping God. So get out of your own head, right? Nobody cares if you raise your hand. Now, if you start, you know, doing something in the aisle, we might, <laughs> right? We might. If you bring in a big flag, we might, right? There are some ways that you can draw attention to yourself. But we want us to be fully engaged. We want to worship God with our mind, with our heart, with our soul, with our body, with our strength, right? And so last week, man, we were, everybody was encouraged by last week. And I'll just tell you, it's fun to preach. When people, when you say something and somebody says, amen, oh, somebody's listening. (laughs) Awesome. I thought that was pretty good when I wrote it down, but I wasn't really sure when I delivered it, but I guess it was, right? It's fun to preach like that. So I heard some people say, uh, somebody said amen or something when I was talking and, and somebody was like, oh, can we do that? Like, yes, you can do that. You have permission to do that. We don't do it often, but that's not, there's no rules that you're breaking, right? We're not saying the real worship of God is quiet, introspective in my mind. We don't, that's not what we say. Worship involves all of the human person, mind, heart, body, soul. So that's all I wanted to say about that. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna jump in. So if you feel like, you know, give me a little amen this morning, go ahead and do it. (laughs) All right. Let me pray. Father, uh, this was a busy weekend for all of, many of us, um, away from our family a lot this weekend and with our church family, and it was good, and it really required a lot of mental energy, and we've been thinking and meditating and processing, and then we lost an hour of sleep last night as well, and so we are, we're tired. There's a lot of physical reasons why we could be a little more subdued this morning, and, and myself as well. I, I, am, I am tired, and so uh, we, we come before you and your word knowing that your word never returns void. 
and you will always accomplish exactly what you have sent your word to accomplish. And this morning, uh, you know what that purpose of your word is. You know what you want to accomplish. And I say, uh, do it through the power of your spirit and the truths of the gospel and the power of the gospel. And would you use me? Would you think through my tired brain this morning and speak out of my mouth? Would you um, restrain me in any foolishness that I might say? And would you loose uh, my tongue to say what you would have it have me to say that so think through my mind speak to my vocal cords be all of you and none of me and help us hear what you would have to say to sacred city church this morning we do this for your glory and our joy in jesus name amen <clears throat> well over the past five weeks we have been taking a look at different aspects of revival uh, we've learned that revival is not something that we can do on our own. We can't kind of conjure it up. It's not something we can plan. It's our job to humbly, to present to God a humbly receptive soul, like to come to God and say, come expectant. God, if you would, we want you to revive us. We are humbly expectant for you to do something here. We want God to move. We ask God to move. But revival doesn't happen unless God actually comes down. But when God does come down, we wake up to some things. So revival can also be called an awakening. We've had great awakenings in our country's history. And during these times of awakening, we wake up to who God is and to who we are We wake up to the Holy Spirit. We wake up to the reality that we're in a spiritual war. We talked about that last week. And today we're going to look at one of the less, I'm going to say spectacular realities of revival. And yet every bit as important. If when you drill down and you study these revivals, we're going to see what I'm going to talk about today in every single move of God. But it's, it's less spectacular. In revival, people wake up to the reality of following Jesus in the normal rhythms of everyday life. They wake up to the reality of following Jesus in the normal rhythms of everyday life. So for us, I'm going to say this. You know that you're in need of spiritual revival if your spiritual life and your real life feel like two different worlds. When when Jesus never really makes an entrance or a disturbance in your everyday life, that's a problem. You're in need of revival. For some of us, we see that like today, like Sunday is the only day of the week that we really ever think about Jesus. For others, your life is just as kind of segregated and fractured. You just have, you're just involved in more religious activities. So you read your Bible, you pray, you go to MC, you come to the gathering. And yet when it comes to sharing your faith or bringing up Jesus in any conversation, you feel like a fish out of water. So here, let me just use it like this. When you come to church, you speak church. But then when you go to work, you speak work and you always try to, how can I bring church into work? It's a segregated, separated kind of mentality. What's going on there? 
Well, what I would present to you is that you're living a disintegrated life. Your faith is one part of your life and then your everyday life is another part. And you're kind of living this life that is separated like oil and water. That God is an important part of your spiritual life, but then you don't really understand how he informs and impacts your everyday life. And so when you're at work, honestly, you never think about God. You shudder to even think about possibly mentioning the name of Jesus at work. When you're at the gym, you're just there to work out. What does God have to do with me getting swole? Well, the answer is everything, actually. In revival, we wake up to the reality of Hebrews 4.13. And here's the scripture. Let me read it. It says this, no creature. That means nothing in creation, nothing alive is hidden from God's sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That means, I, people tell me all the time, if I walk into church, I might get struck by lightning. If I walk through the doors of a church, it might burn down. Listen, out there, you're just exposed as exposed to God as you are in here. His eyes see everyone. Everyone is naked and exposed to the God of whose eyes we must give account. That out there is just as sacred as in here. Now, don't get weird on me. It doesn't mean we just throw away the gathering and we go worship God out in the woods <laughs> by ourselves, right? Listen, I worship God real well when I'm by myself, <laughs> right? Me and God, you know who the person, because you know why? The person I like most in all of creation is me. I very rarely get on my own nerves, right? I'm pretty good with hanging out with me most of the time, right? That's an individualized idea of religion or of knowing God. God has something different for us. Now, what's interesting about this is what this means for us is that God doesn't just want your spiritual devotion. He wants your whole life the earthy one, the one that changes diapers, the one that eats, drinks, works, plays, and lives in and among humans every day. It's interesting, when Jesus started his ministry, you would think that Jesus, the Son of God, stepping out of the Trinity in a sense and coming to this earth as a human being, coming to bring God to man, you would think the first thing he would do is kind of build a church, build a building, create a holy space, have a temple where people could come and they could experience the holiness and the, and the sacredness of God. But that's not what he does. Jesus began his ministry by preaching in Matthew 4, 17, repent, listen, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And that sounds very spiritual, right? He's bringing the kingdom of heaven. So what it's like in heaven, Jesus is bringing that to this earth. Now that sounds so ethereal, so out there, so zen. Oh, he's bringing heaven to earth. I want to get a piece of that. Bringing is, Jesus is bringing some new spiritual teaching, some new spiritual revival, some new spiritual reality to this earth. But it's interesting in Matthew 4, 17, the next verse. So he says, I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven at hand to this earth. And in 4, 18, the next verse, Jesus is walking on the Sea of Galilee and he walks up to a set of two different, two sets of brothers. They're all fishermen, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. First thing we see, he speaks to them in their language, right? He didn't come floating in on a cloud as an enlightened one. He's walking on the beach and he walks up to some dudes here, some redneck dudes, right? Fishermen, rough and tumble men. And he, said, and, and he says, come follow me. And what do they do? They drop their nets and they begin to follow Jesus. Now from this encounter, I want us to see a few things. First, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven isn't just about believing something. So he preaches the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in the next verse, he says, come follow me. He doesn't say, believe some things. Mentally assent to who I am. Have some right doctrines in your mind. That's not what he says. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. It's about following Jesus. It's interesting, he doesn't give an altar call. I get pressured all the time to give an altar call. I don't know why everybody loves altar calls. They talk, I get emails, people talk, why don't we do altar calls? I don't see any in the Bible. It's the main reason. Like, it's the main reason. It's a problem. Our favorite methods weren't, in, you know, used in the Bible. So Jesus doesn't give an altar call. Hey, listen, here, here's the deal. Sin, God, man, repentance, faith. You need to do all this stuff. He doesn't do that. He says, he does say repent and follow me. That's what he says. That means it takes more than just a prayer, more than just mental agreement or some kind of, it takes more than just a spiritual part of me. Don't we want that? Like we come to Jesus and we want like spiritual oomph. That's what I, really that's what I want. Jesus, I don't want you like, to mess with my everyday life. I just want some spiritual oomph, right? When I'm depressed at work, I need some oomph to get me through my day. When my kids are going crazy, I need some oomph to help me through the day, right? That's what I really want from God. And Jesus is like, nah, I don't give oomph. Come follow me. That's what we're talking about. A whole life devotion. And, and that puts something kind of controversial before us. The idea isn't, do you believe in Jesus? The idea that Jesus puts before us is, will you follow me or not? Because what Jesus offers isn't an altar call, it's a command, follow me. And these men have an opportunity now. I can say, no thanks. I enjoy fishing for fish, not really interested in fishing for people, whatever that means. 
right? No thanks. Or they can say, or they can do what they did, drop their nets and follow Jesus, right? You can disobey or you can obey him. That's the command. Follow me or don't. Second, Jesus says here, if you will follow me, I will make you into fishers of men. Now, what Jesus is saying here is pretty simple. He has the power to reorient their entire lives towards his mission. Okay? I want to pause. I'm going to to skip ahead and I'm going to say something. God is a missional God. There's this term in Latin, it's called missio dei. And it means that God has a mission, okay? What do I mean by God has a mission? God is the creator God and he created us to know him and to experience us. He created us to know him. That's his mission, okay? And because of of sin and uh, the fall of Adam and Eve, God wants... Let me see. God wants to be known and God sent his son to show us what he's like and to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve. So God sent Jesus to come save us. See that? There's a missional aspect there. There's a missional impulse that God wants to be known and so he sends his son to us. Okay, and now Jesus is living out this mission of God. And when he brings people into his kingdom, he's saying, I am going to give that missional impulse to you. Come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. He has the power here to reorient their life towards his mission. They were professional fishermen. But if they begin to follow Jesus... Jesus will make them into men who know how to fish for people. That means they will be men who know how to bring others into the kingdom of heaven or how to bring the kingdom of heaven, in a sense, to others. And from this, we learn that discipleship, it's a big word, we use it a lot around here. Discipleship, it literally means following Jesus. That's what it means. A person who is following Jesus that this process, this discipleship process of following Jesus and making disciples who make disciples, look, is not a spiritual gift that some have and others do not. Jesus says, if you follow me, I will make you into a fisher of men. If you follow me, I will make you into a disciple who makes disciples who makes disciples. We do the following and Jesus does the making, right? Jesus does, he makes us into missionaries, fishers of men as we're following him. And as you read, you can read the rest of the book of Matthew and you get to see what this life of following Jesus looks like, this life of discipleship. And one thing that's going to surprise you as you read about following Jesus is just how earthy it was. There weren't a lot of meditation retreats. There was not a lot of spiritual vision quests. There was not a lot of one-on-one meetings. 
right? If I talk to somebody today, typically, and I say, what's discipleship? They're going to say it's a one-on-one meeting with a mentor. So they usually find that in the Bible. It's not there. Instead, what is the life of discipleship? You have a completely normal, I'm going to say a painfully normal life lived in among believers and unbelievers. Now the difference, Jesus lived in and among believers and unbelievers, but he spoke the language of the kingdom. So he spoke good news. Gospel, the gospel means good news. The gospel of the kingdom was his his tongue, his native tongue. He was fluent in speaking the gospel in any and every situation. You see Jesus bringing the good news in every situation that he's in, whether it's at a well with a woman with a shameful past or whether it's at a meal with religious leaders. Everyone was off kilter by Jesus because he had the values and the language of the kingdom, which is the last shall be first and the first shall be last. We could get into that. I won't get into it all today. Jesus talked about the gospel while he was cooking fish. He talked about the gospel on the hillside. He talked about the gospel when they're out in a boat. He talked about the gospel in the temple. They talked about the gospel in their homes. But they didn't just talk about it. Jesus also, so he had this word ministry where he shared the gospel and he wanted people to see their life in a different way with grace at the center, with God pursuing them at the center. But he also wanted them to experience the kingdom to see the kingdom in its action form. So Jesus displayed the gospel. He fed the hungry, right? He didn't just preach the gospel to save people's souls. He filled their bellies first. He met their physical needs first. He healed the sick. He cared for the broken, right? He ministered to soul wounds, Woman at the well comes to mind specifically. He says, he brings up conversations that are uncomfortable. Go get your husband, he says. I've never had a husband. That's right, you haven't. You've had a lot of husbands, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. What's he getting to? He's not exposing, like, to shine a bright light on something in order to, to bring shame. He's saying, you have a soul wound that you're trying to heal through men and the affection of men but I can give you living water. I can quench your thirst in a different way. That God is here with you now and I've come near to the brokenhearted. I've come near to the sexually broken. I've come near to those who are thirsty and I came here to quench your thirst. It's the message of the gospel, but it's also just by his presence doing some, crossing these boundaries, it's a picture of the gospel. Jesus didn't Just tell people that God loved them. He showed it to them through a life, and we use this word around here, with a life lived with gospel intentionality. And what that means is he sees a woman, he says, everything in my culture would cause me to ignore this woman. 
But the good news of the kingdom reorients my earthly life in such a way that now my gospel-driven heart that God pursues the broken causes me to cross all these cultural bar- all these cultural lines and cultural barriers to go show this woman what God is like. God pursues the broken. God draws near to the brokenhearted. God quenches the thirst of the thirsty. His life was driven with gospel intentionality. Now listen, this was the process of making men into disciples. Now, when I say that word, I get a little giddy, the process. If you know anything about college football, you probably know why. All right, Nick Saban, the best coach in college history, college football history, <laughs> has this thing that he calls the process. And, he, he, and this thing is obviously works. Obviously works. Puts, it makes men into championship quali- uh, caliber football players and it, it gets many men to the NFL and gets them what they want, right? And it wins national championships. And this is what his, his recruiting strategy now is this. And his coaching strategy, trust the process. Get into the process and trust the process. Over and over, you're going to be tempted to do it your way and to do it a better way and to, you know, be an individual. Don't do it. Trust the process. Look at my results. If you trust the process, we're going to win a national championship. If you trust the process, you're going to get the NFL contract, but you have to trust the process. There's a lot of coaches out there that want to reinvent the wheel. Nick Saban's like, go ahead and do that. I have the process. This works for us, okay? Now, Jesus had a process of discipleship. We are to trust the process. We are to go back and look at how he made disciples and we're to do, we're to do discipleship the way that Jesus did discipleship. That's the way we're meant to do it, Right? If I tell you to go, well, let me get into that. I'll get into that later. I don't want to do that yet, right? This was Jesus's process of making disciples. In the everyday rhythms of life with gospel intentionality, they didn't try to separate the sacred from the secular. When they're in the marketplace, they they talk this way and act this way. And then when they're in their homes or the temple, they act this way. No, no, no. We have the language of the kingdom, the rhythms of the kingdom all the time. It's all God's. My business is God's. My work life is God's. My parenting life is God's. My recreational time is God's. My church time is God's. It's all God's. That means there aren't just a few new things. When you come to faith, there aren't just a few things you need to believe. There's a whole life that you have to embrace. And if you only are trying to believe some things, you'll never experience the life of the kingdom. Because God gave us a body for a reason. We have to walk it out. We have to live it out. There's a reason why we kneel and pray sometimes. There's a reason why we lift our hands, that our body is meant to embrace our faith. And God is meant to use, we're meant to use our body in discipleship. Our body is a key piece to us. Now, if you think that this body is just a shell that you're going to throw off someday, and your body is therefore bad or evil or meaningless, then you don't understand what the Bible teaches about your body. Because the body is going to be renewed and restored. We're going to be given a new body that kind of looks like ours, but without the sin and the shame and the brokenness. 
in our body. But we're never, the only time we're going to be without a body is in the, what's called the intermediary state between our death and Christ coming back. Other than that, we're always going to have a body. So, Jesus is making disciples in everyday life, right? He's eating with them. He's drinking with them. He's uh, recreating with them. He's going out fishing with them. He's doing all kinds of stuff. It's just everyday life, walking with these disciples, teaching them and walking around. Then all of a sudden, to the dismay of all of his disciples, Jesus is arrested. He's tortured and he's crucified by the religious and governmental leaders of his day. And Jesus dying is kind of a symbol that this kingdom of heaven movement of making disciples, that it's apparently over, it's finished. It's dead and gone. But to the shock of everyone involved, except obviously Jesus, Jesus defeats death and he's resurrected. And listen, this is resurrected is not resuscitated. So he's dead, buried, gone. And then he comes to life with a new physical body and he shows up to people, okay? Jesus shows up. Jesus defeats death and is resurrected to new life who will never die again. And this resurrected Jesus, okay, appears to his disillusioned and distraught disciples in Matthew 28. That's where I want you to go. Open up your Bibles this morning. Matthew 28, verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16. I'm going to wait for you to get there. Good. So you got the context, right? These disciples have lived with Jesus. They've ate with Jesus. They've walked with Jesus for about three years, most scholars say. Jesus is dead. They go back to fishing. The men we just saw, they go back to fishing, pick up their business again, right? That was a failure. And then in this section of scripture here, the resurrected Christ shows up to them. And this this is where we go. Let's look at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, that's Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now I wanted you to see right here that how refreshing the Bible is and how real the Bible is. And again, kind of how earthy and humane the Bible is. That we sang a song this morning that said, Jesus is better, help my heart believe. What? The Bible does not say once you see Jesus, once you come to know Jesus, it's just this upward trajectory and you never lose faith and you never doubt and you're never, you know, less than just absolutely confident in what God is doing and what God has done in your life? Absolutely not. Can, you, can we just pause for a second? These men just saw Jesus tortured, crucified, murdered, buried. And now the resurrected Jesus is standing in front of them and some of them are worshiping and some of them are like, I don't know. Hmm. People don't come back to life. Hmm. Not sure about this. This is an incredibly refreshing and simultaneously challenging scripture for us. 
First off, it shows us that disciples still doubt at times. Even those closest to Jesus. Even those you know, closest to Jesus had moments when their faith was weak and they didn't believe rightly. How could this really be Jesus? We just saw the guy crucified. Other translations translate this word doubted as hesitated. And that means, oh man, someone told me this this week. Justin, the gospel, it's almost too good to be true. And I go, yes, it is too good to be true, but it's true. That's the reality of the gospel. And so these hesitating disciples are like, oh, I hope that's him. But I'm not going to get, you know, sucked into another thing again. Right? Hold on. I'm I'm going to just check this out for a little while. They're hesitating. They're processing things. They weren't just going to jump right in and throw all their eggs in one basket again. They were slow to believe. They were saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I just want to say, we want to create at Sacred City a lot of room for that. We want to create a lot of room for, I like that. I don't know if it's true. Let me, let me stick around and see. We, we, we invite you to come stick around and see. Because we think you're really going to believe when you really stick around and see how the gospel isn't just something that we say. It's something that's empowering the way that we live. It's something that's actually happening and actually bringing life to us and actually causing really self-centered people to open up and invite other people into their life, right? It's really going on. It's really causing wealthy people to give up their money to serve the poor. It's it's really happening around here. It really is. And we we want you to come in and look at this and check it out. And you can hesitate. That's fine. Ask, ask the Lord, Lord, help me in my unbelief. I believe, help, help my unbelief. Now, so Jesus is here, shows up. Some are worshiping, some are doubting. Verse 18, and Jesus came to them and said, or Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now this, this is the greatest like surprise in history. their faith has been crushed because they just watched the Son of God powerless on the cross. And everything in their world says God has to be powerful. You can't kill God. Nobody can kill God, right? Like, just think of the idea of Superman, right? Bullets don't touch this guy, right? How Superman can't die unless, you know, there's one thing that can get him, right? But, Jesus on the cross, this doesn't compute. All circuits are fried. God, powerless, becoming man, being killed by the religious and governmental leaders, being condemned as a heretic? No. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, surprise, I am God. All power and all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And what he's saying is that Jesus is God, that he's resurrected and will soon be glorified at the right hand of God the Father, that Jesus is no longer the poor preacher from Galilee. 
Jesus is no longer the one who doesn't have a home to lay his head. Jesus is now the, or he's about to be, he's he's leaving, he's going to be the exalted king of kings who sits at the right hand of God and judges the world with all authority. The one that every knee shall bow and every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords. So here we see as Jesus' earthly ministry ends, the disciples' ministry now is just beginning. And he's, so Jesus has all this authority and he's with this newfound authority, let's say, he's giving the, he's giving the mission that he had, he's handing it over now to his disciples. And so we see a transition in the Missio Dei, the mission of God. God had a mission to be known, so he sent the Son to make him known to a people. Jesus made people, made known the Father to human beings, and now look what Jesus does. Jesus says the mission will continue, and he's going to first send the Spirit in Acts 1.8. The Father sends the Son. The Father and Son send the Spirit. And now what we see, the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, send the church, send disciples of Jesus. That there's this missional impulse that God wants to be known. And so God sent the Son, and God wants to be known. And so they sent the Spirit, and God wants to be known. So now the Father, Son, and Spirit send us into the world. He says this, go, so with all the authority that have been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go, that's the first word. Let's let's break it apart a little bit. What is this statement here? Go, we say it all the time. You've probably heard it a million times, thousand times in your life, whatever. Go, make disciples of all nations. Let's pick it apart. First, he says, go. That means disciples are made as you're going in the normal rhythms of life. Listen, disciples are not made in a classroom. Disciples are not made on a podcast or through a podcast. Now, that can be a piece of discipleship that can help us with some thinking rightly about some things. It also means that disciples are to have, look, an outward-facing posture that we're sent. Jesus, go. Leave heaven, go to earth. Spirit, leave, go. Church, leave, go. Disciples, go. We make disciples as we go. We have an outward-facing posture. Who is God sending me to? That we are missionaries on the go, wanting to share the gospel with anyone we come in contact with, in word or deed. Second, this is interesting, Jesus says, go make disciples. Now, when we hear the word make, we should see there a process, right? If I tell you, go make me a sandwich, right? And you come back with just some hunks of meat. I'm like, they don't know the process. You don't reinvent the sandwich, right? There's a process to making sandwich. You take something, could be bread, could be lettuce, whatever. (laughs) And you put stuff in there. But the idea of a sandwich is I can hold it in my hand without getting too messy and 
The outside stuff is okay. The inside stuff's where the, where's the meat, right? That's the good stuff, right? Go make a sandwich. There's a process involved. When Jesus says, go make disciples, he's implying there, there is already a process involved in making discipleship, making disciples. You don't have to invent this thing. Jesus has already showed them exactly how to make disciples by discipling them in community, a group of people, 12 apostles, and on mission as they were going. They'd go from city to city, town to town, house to house, reaching out to anybody who was in the vicinity, sharing the gospel in word or deed with anybody that would listen, right? He's already shown them the process. Live your life in community and on the mission of God by making disciples who make disciples who make disciples in the everyday stuff of life. Jesus was not telling the disciples, all right, guys, here it is. I came, I lived with you, I died, I was resurrected. Go invent some new programs. Figure this thing out on your own. He was not telling them to do that. He was saying, what I've done in you and what I've done through you, you do in others and you do through others. Live the life that we've lived for three years. Live it with more people now. Spread it out. And this calling for them is the same as it is for us today. We are to make disciples who make disciples as we follow Jesus, as we're going in the everyday stuff of life. But I'll be honest, many of us have never been discipled like that. We've grown up in churches whose discipleship model was something other than Jesus' discipleship model. It was Sunday school and then church service. It was church service and a small group. It was church service and a Bible study. And so if you want to disciple someone, what you're actually saying, when I hear we want you to be a disciple, where's the Bible study? And people say, well, where's your Bible study? Well, we don't have a Bible study. Well, you guys don't disciple? Oh, no, no, we disciple. Where was Jesus's Bible study? Right? Now, you could say it's all a Bible study because he's teaching as he goes. He's bringing the language of the kingdom and the lessons of the kingdom and the Old Testament and everything. He's interpreting it as he goes. So the Bible, he's teaching the Bible in every situation. He's not like segregating and going, now is where we talk about the Bible. And then we leave and we go to work and we don't know how to get the Bible into our work life. We don't know how to get the gospel of the kingdom into our everyday rhythms. So we have got, if we've been discipled like that, we have got to go back to the New Testament here, back to the scriptures, back to the beginning, back to the process, and say, how did Jesus make disciples? How did Jesus talk to outsiders? How did Jesus approach the sexually broken? How did Jesus approach the morally, uh, you know, the, the ones that have broken the moral laws of the day? How did Jesus approach them? How did, what did Jesus do with religious people? How did Jesus talk to people who thought they were better than others? Whoa, okay. And we see a radical posture of grace lived in community and on mission. And now we should see that and we should go, okay, let's try that. Can we do that? Like, I, can we really do that? Can we really look at the New Testament and go, I had so many people, but when, I, when we were planting Sacred City, t- telling me that the concept of living in missional community wouldn't work. 
They said it won't work, especially in the Midwest. Because in the Midwest, we're moral, we're private. We like to kind of know people a little bit, but we don't want them to know our junk. We don't want to know that we just got in a fight with our wife. We don't want to know that our, that our teenage son is rebelling. We don't want them to know that much about us. And so to be in community on mission, it won't work in the Midwest, right? We're, a, we're more of a farming community whose well, cities kind of popped up, right? F but, but the farming community, we, we like our houses like with few acres in between, right? I can see them over there. If I ever need something, I could go get them, right? But I don't want them in my everyday life. And now we've been doing this for seven years. And for my, in my mentality, I, I, didn't, I really didn't care what they thought. I said, I don't see any other way of doing it. I go to the Bible. This is what the Bible says. This is what we're going to do. It's going to work or it's not going to work. I don't know. It's the process. We're going to get back into the process of Jesus. And I think by God's grace, we've seen it has worked. Disciples are being made. People are living out the mission of God. They have come to see their everyday life as a piece as a, as a context to live out the mission of God with kind of gospel intentionality. Now, so Jesus says, go, therefore, therefore, because I've given you, I have all authority, I've given it to you, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Here's some things. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is giving them a new identity a Trinitarian identity. He's again tying it in to the mission of God. As the Father sent the Son, the Son sent the Spirit, the Spirit is the Trinity is sending you. And God's people, this is this is something new for many people. God's, we don't have a mission. This church doesn't have a mission. All right? God has a mission. God's mission has a people. It's, it's kind of backwards. We exist. The church, church exists because God has a mission to be known. And all we're doing is kind of, as we come to faith, we kind of put up our sails and we get caught up in the mission of God. So what does that mean for me? That's, just, that's a big theological concept. That means this. We don't ask ourselves, do I have time for being on God's mission? No, no, no. Time exists because God has a mission. Time exists because God has a mission to be known. As soon as God's mission is fulfilled, time will be rolled up like a scroll, the New Testament says. So it's not, do I have time for God's mission? This is why he created you. This is why he gave you a new identity as a disciple, as a missionary, as a member of the family of God. He brought you in so that he could send you out on his mission. And you do that through whatever vocation that you have that honors the Lord. I have to put that in there. Now, we are not our own. We are his. We are bought at the high price of his son, and now our entire lives belong to him. He's adopted us. We're his children. 
We as Christians are now brothers and sisters sent as missionaries to live in such a way that those around us could see and experience what God is actually like. That was one of the greatest blessings of being around Jesus is you got to see like, oh, that's what compassion looks like. That's what humility looks like. That's a kingdom virtue. That's something that's gonna be like in heaven. I get to see that. When we live out the values of the kingdom on this earth in our everyday rhythm, that's what people see. Whoa, that's what self-sacrifice looks like. That's what laying your life down for your brother looks like. That's what humility and care and kindness and gentleness and hospitality looks like. We, what, the term that we use here is our lives should demand a gospel explanation. So our neighbors, should, neighbors coworkers, why do they do that? And the only answer, the answer isn't, well, I'm a highly civilized human being. <laughs> I'm enlightened. Went to school, read some books. That's how good Americans live. No, no, no. The answer is a gospel explanation. God has saved me. God has humbled me. God has brought me in when I don't deserve it. God has came near when he should have pushed away from me in my brokenness. No, no, no. This is why I live this way. It's the gospel. Our lives should demand a gospel explanation. Then he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So again, going right back to the ways of Jesus and what Jesus taught. And lastly, look. Hold on, stop. Teaching them to obey. It's not, again, just a belief in our head. Going back, how did Je- what did Jesus say about our sexuality? What did Jesus say about our money? What did Jesus say about our family life? Discipleship is the process of every single day learning to submit all of my life to the Lordship of Christ. And there's all kind of avenues and there's all kind of dark corners in my own heart that don't live up to the standard of God, that aren't the way of Jesus. And I need people in my life to come alongside of me and say, that doesn't line up with what Jesus did. Let's do this together. Teaching me to obey all of the commandments. Now that's what the elders do. That's what the deacons do. That's what your MC leaders do. That's what we all do with one another teaching us to submit all of our life to the Lordship of Christ. Now listen, so this is what I'm saying. The gospel that you believe, when you embrace it, Jesus says, come follow me. That gospel brings you into the family and that gospel also sends you out on mission. And many of you have embraced it. You know it, you get it. Yes, exactly, amen. But then when we get out there on mission, and this is what we need to see. This is not an individual command. Jesus is not sending individuals out into mission fields by themselves. That's crazy. You send one person out amongst wolves, they get gobbled up. That's what happens. He's sending the disciples together out on mission. You see in the New Testament, very rarely does anyone go out in a new mission field. They go out in teams of people. That it's not missionaries in the individual sense being sent out. It's missional communities being sent out together. Now, sometimes the Apostle Paul, he only takes one or two people with them. The Apostle Paul is a rare individual, right? 
right? Shipwrecked multiple times, beaten, stoned to death, snake bitten, shakes it off, let's get to work. In the prison, like you, you lock him up in a prison. He's like, where's the jailer at? Let me tell you about the gospel. The jailer gets saved. Are you Paul? Please, because I need some of that if you are Paul. I want to hang out with you, right? No, no. Disciples together sent on mission, and this is the key piece too. Look what he says. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In our American Western society who love the avant-garde, we love like leadership, we love kind of the autonomy of the individual. Listen what we want to be. We want to hear, go be a leader, go be a missionary, and you're going to go together. And here's what happens. Well, we've seen this over and over in our church. Living the missionary lifestyle on your own is exhausting and you won't succeed. If you're the only person at your gym trying to disciple people, you, you won't succeed. You're gonna get worn out. You're gonna get dragged down. You're gonna get the theological term is inculturated. They're gonna disciple you. You're not gonna disciple them. They're going to disciple you. And so Jesus sends them out with the group and promises them, listen, the gospel that sends you out is also the gospel that reminds you in community and on mission, Jesus is with us. He's going with us into mission. So he's the one who's gonna keep us out there on mission because it's exhausting out there. In community, on mission, not by yourself, not solo. So, as I close this morning, we are a family of missionary servants. God has brought us in and God is sending us out. And if we want to know what that looks like, let's just look at Jesus. Jesus was a normal guy. Listen, he wore normal clothes. Jesus didn't wear t-shirts with his face on them. Okay? Didn't d dress a distinctively Christian way. He didn't eat Christian food or listen to Christian music. Right? They worship through song. He ate what everybody else ate. He drank what everybody else drank, including wine. He lived among people. He dressed what they dressed like. He spoke the message of the kingdom, and he lived out the values of the kingdom. That's what made him distinct. That's what made him different. He was known for spending a lot of time with notorious sinners, so much so that he was called a glutton and a drunkard, even though he was never a glutton and a drunkard. But he got that label. Could you get that label? Are you living your life in and amongst sinners like that? We're all sinners, but in amongst unbelievers like that. What would happen if all 200 of us in this room today started to live out this type of life? History has showed us revival would happen more than likely. As believers take the truths of the gospel and the rhythms of the gospel and they live it out in their everyday life, more people get a picture of the kingdom, more people get a picture of Jesus, more people get to ask the question, why do you do that? Or do you get the power to do that? This comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is with us. So I want you to see here, Mission is not something you tack on to an already big, busy schedule. Mission is the purpose of our life. 
We are missionaries. And some of you, you are missionaries undercover at John Deere. Some of you are missionaries undercover at the coffee shop. Some of you are, all of us are missionaries undercover in our neighborhoods. That is our identity. That's who we are. And we live it out as employees, as parents, as neighbors, as friends, as coaches. But we're there to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, first off, I want, you, I want to ask you, are you following Jesus? Not, are you a fan of him? Do you believe in him? Are you following him? And if you're not, I ask that you would commit to following him. Join a missional community. Get in a community. Get on the mission of God. We'd love, we'd love to have you. We welcome you. Secondly, I want us to think about mission, that this meal itself is a missional meal. That every one of us in this room started out as an outsider to grace. And we're an outsider to the gospel. What is the gospel? What is, what is the good news? We didn't know it at one point in time. But God, because he's a missionary, came after us and saved us and brought us into this family. That God was on mission to us at one point. And we eat this meal today with reconciled sinners. All of us. God is on mission to us and he's brought us into this family. We've been drafted and brought into this missionary family. That God's mission will move forward with us or without us, but don't we want to be a part of it? Don't we want to be a part of what he's going to do in the Quad Cities? So as we come this morning, let's repent for being terrible missionaries because we are half the time or maybe more than that. Let's repent of that. But let's also say, Father, thank you for being the missionary. The one who pursued me when I was running from you and I didn't want anything to do with you. You pursued me through your son and through your spirit and through your church and you've loved me and you've brought me in and now help me live out this identity as a missionary in my everyday life. Father, I thank you for the missionary heart of God. A God that wants us. A God that delights in us. A God that pursues the broken and the rebellious and the ones that stiff arm him in his face he still pursues. Jesus, thank you for putting that in flesh and showing us what it looks like for God to come after us. And Spirit, thank you for being the one that gets in us. You infiltrate us. I pray that you would melt these hearts of stone and that you would, given us, that you would remind us of that missionary, missionary identity that we have and you would help us bring the gospel to bear in our work, in our homes, in our parenting, in our neighboring this week. There are people that we could invite to church. There are people we can invite to missional community. There are people we can ask to have over for dinner. There are people that we can invite out to coffee. And we never know what you're going to do in those conversations. Would you lead your people to do that today in Jesus' name? As we come, Father, you put your broken body of your son into our hands and you put his blood into our mouth. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, this is my body and this is my blood. 
It's a picture of the kingdom. It's a picture of the gospel. You broken for us. We eat it in worship, repentant worship this morning. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.